HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont. For more information, visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And it's taken us months, months upon months, years upon years, to actually make this happen today. Hoga Massoff, a.k.a. SassyRadish.com. We'll ask where that moniker <laughs> came from in a bit. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And quite possibly at your busiest moment, too. It, it, there's, yes, things are, things are sort of colliding with one another it's 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 an amazing path that you've taken um because food writing amongst so many other things that you do in your life wasn't kind of on your initial radar uh you're you're a russian expat i am and where in russia and why expatted um well i was born in st petersburg and uh, my family and i immigrated in December of 88, and at the time, immigration was not straight from Russia or USSR to America. We were, we had to go to Vienna first and stay there for three weeks while they processed all our documents. And then we had to go to uh, Italy and stay there for a month while they processed our documents. I'm not <laughs> sure why. Yeah. And then we had a choice to go to either Australia or Argentina or Israel or uh, the U.S. or I think there was another country, and so we decided to go to the U.S. and we decided to come to Boston. Yeah. So the reason we left was on it, both of my parents had uh, trouble in Russia as um, Russian Jews uh, going to college um, to, for majors that they wanted to. It was, it's it's a pretty intolerant country. I, I'm sure that doesn't um, strike you as yeah. surprising. Given, we won't even talk about yes, the Olympics. Yeah, oh yeah, it's uh, we could we, that could take up half an yeah. hour. Um, but 
they wanted me to have a better future. They wanted me to do whatever it is that I wanted to do and to have a more stable and uh, successful, fulfilling life. See, it's funny thinking about those paths. Uh, you know, Definitely. Vienna to Italy. Right. In retrospect, that is one of the best culinary vacations you can have. It's true, except we had like $3 to rub together. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, they gave us, we couldn't take money with us from Russia at the time. And so we were traveling on um, Jewish immigration assistance. And so we had so little money that we were like rationing it for food. So yeah. I don't, I don't really, I, I, I would be lying if I said that I sampled the best of the best. Yeah. Um, although both of those cuisines are I'm a huge fan of, especially we were in Rome, and Roman food is phenomenal. So then Boston. Boston. Known for its exquisite blanks. <laughs> well, oysters and lobster, and, you know, um, I think there are a lot of great things. Like, I, I think, um, don't quote me on this, but apple pie with cheddar, um, I think that's sort of a New England yeah. thing, which I love. Um, but, yeah, I mean came to came to Boston or rather Boston suburb right next to Salem Mass rich with its own um, fantastic history so um, yeah so came there and uh, I started cooking pretty early after I mean I cooked when I was a little kid I was playing around in the kitchen always. I was always drawn to yeah. being in the kitchen because I think kitchens is where the action happens and gossip happens and people... It, <laughs> it, is, it is the it's family of, water cooler. It's the, right, it's the family water cooler. But my parents worked pretty long hours and they started working right away or they were taking night classes and so I sort of started... I took it upon myself to start putting dinner on the table um, and making it. So I don't even remember what I was cooking at the time. It was very pretty simple but i started making dinner for a family like pretty nightly i mean as far as russian cuisine goes i know there are a lot of soups hot and cold yes it's hearty yeah, yeah. it's hearty but also you know it's funny there's definitely lovely uh, very not uh, stick to your ribs kind of things in the summer that you can have um one of my favorite salads that we made in russia and we make here all the time that i make here all the time is um cucumber and radish and dill and um, scallion and parsley and you put whatever green herb you have and then you throw a bunch of sour cream on it and put salt on it. It's the simplest yeah. thing in the world and I can eat it. Like if you make give me a big bucket of it, I will eat it. Yeah, it's and amazing. You know, with, with Middle Eastern cuisine kind of proliferating and you see things like uh, labna, fatouche and people know those, you yeah. know, you just move a little further east. It's exactly. there too, just and, with a different name. And Russians put sour cream on everything. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's our national condiment. And pelmeni, is that how you oh, say it? Oh, yes. The, Russia, the meat dumpling yeah, is yeah. amazing. So, I mean, I know all the things that are kind of pierogi-esque. You know, being yeah. out Brighton Beach and right. going to M&I, which is sadly no longer the international Wait, market. What happened to it? I think it closed. Seriously? I was, look, I was researching it because I was going to be out there this morning and you bring back a treat. <laughs> you just completely I, I shattered my worldview. <laughs> do, do not quote me on that, but oh, I, I did look... Online was, before I made a trek out there, and it said it's no longer. That was quite a store. Yeah, it Everything was. and anything was there. And, and pickled, you know, watermelon, pickled. I love pickled watermelon. Pulled tomatoes. But, uh, you know, Russian cuisine for me, um, my grandma was Romanian, so I kind of got like a subset of that. Uh, all that sour, you know, which was kind of adverse as a child. Yeah. And then you moving to Boston, where it's like hearty Americana. Yes. Um, there's not much sour. There's a lot of... <clears throat> I guess there are pickles, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like every culture has its own pickle because every culture had to figure out how to 
preserve things at some point, right? You know, you didn't have refrigeration, so not not as much as in Russian culture. I really think Russians do a lot. I mean, they'll pickle anything. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a. Uh, um, it's a. Uh, I I always grew up liking pickled things, um, but I know none of my classmates when I was in Russia going to grade school liked anything pickled, but I could like eat pickles and um, tomatoes and watermelon. My mom used to make um, pickled watermelon. Yeah. So we're in Boston now. Um, still the same area where uh, we settled, uh, which is Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, very home, home of fluff. Yes. How did you know that? Oh, I have, I have a little <laughs> fluff story, which I'll That's reveal right. someday. But yeah, you spin home around. Of, home, yeah, home I tried to get in the factory fluff. one time and yeah. I was disallowed. No, yeah. really? Denied? Mm-hmm. Ouch. Um, yeah, so Homo Fluff, I think that's that's sort of its current claim to fame. At the time, it was a big shoe capital uh, manufacturing in the country. Yeah. Like, turn of the century. So, but yeah, but that's that's where my family now resides. So. so I know from, you know, schooling education, it wasn't, again, towards food, but more so no. towards finance. Yeah. And Boston is a kind of a financial hub. It's, it's, it's an economic city. It yeah. isn't. And I don't mean to chide anyone there. Isn't the most creative place? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yes, no, it's not. Uh, though there are pockets of creativity as there are in, I think, other cities. Um, but I gravitated towards, um, like most children of immigrants, to practical, um, reliable, um, stable things things that would enable me to you know perhaps support my parents when they were older and make sure that I always had a steady job and I always had money in the bank and um, when you come to uh, when you come to another country you see that your parents struggle with you know culturally struggle with the fact that they're older they don't speak the language as well and you think I never want to wake up in the middle of the night thinking, how am I going to pay rent? And that sort of, I, that, that's something that really shaped the way that I look at the world and how I make a lot of decisions, you know, for better or worse. But I, um, I thought that finance was, you know, stable. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily after the huge paycheck. I wound up falling into the hedge fund realm after college because at the time when I was graduating hedge funds were a little bit like um, the dot coms they were nimble they were small there was a lot of uh, quick decision making and there wasn't a lot of um, uh, red tape and so I thought that was really interesting um, now of course it's much more institutionalized and the reputation of hedge funds is mm, not, yeah. not, not, not that good um, so I but at the time it wasn't anything so so big and bad and so I joined and at first I worked for a couple of investment banks and um, then I joined a hedge fund and worked in their marketing department and I just never I honestly never loved it and it never fueled my passion and on any given day I could not tell you what the Dow would close at but I could tell you who wrote which magazine you know food article what's the coolest new ingredient that I was experimenting with what cookbook I just purchased things like that like I could talk to you about that for a couple hours at least um but i couldn't i just couldn't for the life of me really become passionate about finance and i don't think i was i think i was okay at it but i don't think i was ever good at it but it's partly because i didn't really care for it so when do you take that leap of faith i know sassy radish has actually been blogged for some time now 
It's been around for a while. 2005? Yeah. 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 And I, and I didn't quite focus on it that much. When I started it, it was more like just a creative outlet just to document what I was doing, you know, cooking-wise. I didn't really think about doing anything with it uh, long-term. But um, so in 08, when the markets fell and things got really, really dicey, um, and uh, where I was working, we lost quite a bit of money because we were invested in Asian, Asian markets fell. And I just remember thinking, it's it, this is not a place for me. Um, it's It's really hard. It's just really hard to justify while the rest of the country was struggling to pay bills, everybody on Wall Street was complaining that they weren't getting a big enough bonus. Mm -hmm. And at one point or another, I just said, I can't, this is, this isn't computing in my head and I can't sell something I don't believe in really. So I started to think about it more. And, um, in February of 2011, I took that leap and my now husband and boyfriend was very, very supportive and encouraging. And I think he like kept egging me on and said, yeah. do it. It's your life. You're going to look back and regret things that you maybe didn't try, but you, you know, will you really regret things that you have tried? And so I, um, I knew our fund was shutting down its New York offices. So instead of just looking for another job in finance, I decided to strike out on my own. And parallel at the time, I also became friendly with Melissa Clark, who writes for the New York yeah. Times. And she sort of she took me under her wing and um, I want to say took pity on me and had some kind of faith in me when I had absolutely zero professional cooking or, or writing experience. And um, she took me on as her interim assistant and allowed me to work on a few book projects with her. One of the latest one being um, Franny's cookbook that just came out. And um, it was amazing and I loved it. And, you know, some of it was as exciting as maybe testing recipes and some of it was not as exciting as like going out at you know fifteen degree weather and getting groceries for a recipe test. No, we have to talk about those unflattering moments yeah. though, because people don't or washing piles of dishes like exactly. Piles and piles there, of there's dishes. cleanliness. There's clerical. I mean, there are things that you have to do in this profession to succeed in this profession that yep. you know are, are unspoken but should be told. Editing a recipe mm -hmm. to the point of delirium. Yeah. Um, Writing, you know, figuring out what a good head note is, what a good chapter intro sh is going to contain, which for every book is going to be, of course, different. Um, so it was really, really, uh, it was a great um, educational opportunity. And um, I'm going to be forever grateful to Melissa for. Well, know. I mean, mentorships, too, in kitchens, in restaurants yep. are, are and I always idolized Melissa from college. Yeah. I was reading her column thinking, this person's amazing and she's such a great writer. And then I was So did you contact her or was it just a felicitous meeting? We followed each other on Twitter um, like eons ago. And I guess Twitter wasn't like, a, like when the Kardashians weren't on Twitter yet. <laughs> <laughs> when it was still like a hip new thing. And, um, and I ran into her once at uh, the Grand Army Plaza Farmer's Market. And I did something that I never ever do because I am notoriously very shy with people that I admire and respect deeply but for whatever reason I came up to her and I said you're Melissa Clark and I love your work and I've been reading she's like oh my god you're sassy radish and I pretty much after that didn't know what to say because I thought oh she knows who I am and this is the greatest day of my life so um that's that's how we met and we just sort of kept in touch and uh 
it just so happened that she needed somebody to come in right at the time when I was leaving um, my job. And it was like on January 31st, I came in for work for the last day in the hedge fund. And February 1st, I was at Melissa Clark's house. Like, yeah, that's that, that, that was the transition. I didn't even take a day. Do you remember that first recipe you worked on her with? Um, no, because a couple months prior to that, I was helping her on a book that she was writing. Um, so I was doing a lot of transcription for her. So after that, I was, I was doing so much work. I was working my full-time job, the hedge fund, and then I was coming home and doing like five or six hours of transcription a night. So it's all, it's all sort of blurry, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but there was, you know, there was quite it was quite a grab bag of of different uh, responsibilities for someone who had no restaurant experience no particular writing experience in this field how do you thrust yourself into it because i I also know you know my first introduction to you was through andrew scrivani yes who also has been an amazing mentor for me and And a good friend he just goes she's self-taught and you know it's something that if you are so impassioned by it and even Going up and introducing yourself to Melissa. If, if, if I have no idea what possessed yeah, me to yeah. do that. But if I, you want to make something happen, sometimes you have to have that it's like, leap of faith again. It's like another force yeah, guided me yeah. to yeah. it. You know, um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I in my free time, however little I had and however little I had now, I always read books on um, different recipes, different techniques, um, how different uh, food writers and bloggers and chefs how you know how they do things um because there are they're like you know 50 different ways to hard boil an egg and all of them are great and you know some of them are probably not as great but there there, there's not one way to hard boil an egg there's not one way to roast a chicken there's not one particular way to you know make meringue there's so many different ways that people do things and just learning from them and learning the technique, the ingredient, the you know, the story behind the way that they do things. To me, all those things are so interesting. So, um, did I just answer your question, or I answered my own question? No, you you answered a very important thing about kind of the democratic decision of things. <laughs> you know that there is no one particular way. Even though there are culinary schools that teach you a foundation, and you get that skill set, and that is important. Yep. Um, new techniques and new ideas come off those paths. So. There really is no one particular protocol or procedure to, to figuring this out. And I think it's always great to keep an open mind, you know, um, because you're you're always going to learn something. Um, I, you know, per, first example that comes into my head was when I was helping Melissa um, work on the Franny's cookbook. We were testing a recipe for his frittata. And he does something very unusual. He sticks his frittata in a very low heat oven and he cooks it for a long time. So it cooks almost like a custard. And so when you take it out, it's this delicate, delicate, delicate yolk. And most people, when they cook their frittata, I think they put it in at a pretty high heat and then it puffs up. So it's a very different, it's a very different result and you get a very different texture to it. And I think that it it kind of opened my eyes a little bit, Um, you know, just to think of a more specific example. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and open everybody's eyes to so many different cultures from kimchi to the Russian pantry to artisan ice cream. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back.
Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Barwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I was still kind of humming that considered Bardwell <laughs> song when we went back it's on. It's a good song. Yeah. I back like here it. with Olga Massoff, sassyradish.com. Um, and, we, you know, the, the word struggle kept on coming up uh, between your parents and cultural struggle. But, you know, there's also a struggle to kind of understand another person's culture mm-hmm. through their food, through, you know, their heritage, their, you know, deriving their identity through that. And, your first project was not a Russian cookbook, even though you no. have that, you know, foundation. It, it was something very particular, um, very specific, yeah, and very centr- very very um, uh, pointed. Yeah, Korean kimchi. Yes. And why? Well, again, um, Melissa Clark, uh, my patron saint of all good things, uh, put me in touch with this woman, uh, Lauren Chun, who owns a boutique kimchi company in New York called uh, Mother-in-Law Kimchi, and she needed a writer. She had, at the time, um, which I hadn't tried her, I could tried her kimchi by the time I met her, but I didn't know her product at all, and I thought her kimchi was amazing. It was really complex and um, had all kinds of notes that I hadn't tried, in, and I've always liked kimchi, so. And for those who don't know kimchi? It is, okay, so kimchi is, um, most people know it as pickled cabbage or daikon radish that's preserved in a mix of chili pepper and salt and um, anchovy and small tiny pickled shrimp and a bunch of other things. But actually, kimchi is something, it's the process of fermentation. So you can kimchi anything. You can kimchi any produce, cucumbers, you can make it um, long term, uh, so like half heads of napa cabbage 
and um, keep them in these special clay pots called the ongi. And uh, you can also kimchi and make an instant kimchi in the summer, say with something like a cucumber. Um, so the idea is that when in the summer, but Korea was an agrarian society before refrigeration. Before in in the summer, when you have a lot of different produce coming in, you can eat something immediately, right? You don't have to store it for a long time. But in the winter, when things get pretty cold and you basically are stuck with like tubers and meat and rice. Um, it's exciting to have a vegetable on your plate. So that, that was, I think, the, the idea behind it. But you can pickle anything. You can kimchi yeah. anything. So that's, that's um, Lauren and I met. And uh, she asked me to come on board to be her writer. So wrote a book. Um, came out last November. and to Great successes. Great praise. Thank you. Um, I mean, and to take a single subject and be, you know, uh, the, the lexicon of that. Right. I mean, it's an intimidating thing, but it's a, it's an amazing collaborative process because you yourself are the writer, and then there is the the chef or proprietor. How right. how does that process start? Well, I basically try to learn as much from the person that I'm working with, and also if I'm writing, uh, you're asking more about you know how it goes in general, right? How I get into the inside, yeah. inside somebody's <laughs> head and send sound like them, so. There's a lot of listening and there's a lot of story gathering and understanding how the person sounds and what their expertise is in. And you, it's a balance between telling their story because there's always a story and the story is just as important, I think, as the recipe itself because you can sort of weave a nice history of the way that we are as people Um, and the way that people look at food and the way that cultures historically have looked at food. Well, I keep on um, thinking that a, a cookbook without head notes is headless, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, well, I guess these days it, you'd be hard-pressed to see a cookbook without head notes. Uh, but it always um, it always made sense to me to have head notes. Not so much for, you know, you can always put a little instructional head note. If there's no, sometimes there's no, no story, right? This is good, eat it, yeah. make it. <laughs> so, um, but sometimes it's important to say, look, this is the way, you know, be very careful when you're, you know, sourcing this particular product you you may want to go here here and here for it or there's a tip or there's a technique but it's so great to learn stories um but going back to you know working with chefs and working with other folks who need books written um you basically sit down with them you get their recipes you get their stories you get their expertise and you figure out the direction that they want the book to be in so some of these books, you know, become, uh, they're not as comprehensive, so they're not end-all, be-all. So the kimchi book was never intended to be the art of fermentation, like Sandor Katz's book. And I think some folks were uh, a little surprised. They said, well, this isn't like Sandor Katz's book. And I thought, I, I, I'm, I cannot compare myself to Sandor yeah. Katz. His, his knowledge base of fermentation is so vast, and that's his whole, right? That's, that's his whole um, focus, or one of his major focuses. And um, sometimes, in the case of the book that I'm writing with Mark Virgione, um, Iron Chef Mark Virgione, he really wanted to, and, and it, it was very important for the story of how he got to where he got to and how the restaurant survived to be told. That was a very important aspect of not just the recipes themselves, but how the recipes came to be, because without him getting onto the Iron Chef, some of these recipes wouldn't have come out because it changed the way that his brain was wired. It made him think a lot more creatively and it made him a lot more fearless in the kitchen. 
in the case of you know the uh, couple of more current cookbooks that I'm working with that also remains to be seen how uh, you know how the chef how the the primary author wants their voice to be heard so there's a lot of listening there's a lot of taking notes there's a lot of taping people and transcribing what they're saying um, verbatim so you can understand the, the turn of phrase that they tend to use um, and it's just taking your own vision of the world and putting it aside which I have no problem doing because I love learning from other people well it's not putting it aside it's assimilating well right but it's not um, it's not your voice yeah. uh, it's you know one of the best compliments I got was the first time I showed a draft of Mark's narrative Mark Forgione's narrative to, to him he said to me and he's not a man of many words <laughs> he's a super nice super nice guy but he's not you know very he's not very loquacious um and he said to me wow that really sounds like me that that sounds exactly how i that how i talk and that was that was that was a really great thing to hear because i slaved and agonized and lost sleep and i was so nervous handing it to him so the fact that he thought that it sounded like him was a good sign so it's like single white female in the best of way in the best of way <laughs> Right. <laughs> Van Leeuwen ice cream. Yes. Again, you know, Ben is a very uh, particular individual, very, yes. very, you know, interesting person. Yes, he is. But then there's ice cream as a whole, too. Yes. How do you take a personality and a product and kind of interweave those things? Um, well, uh, <laughs> uh, when I was writing... Um, uh, a draft of the proposal because I got a draft of the proposal somewhat written and then I had to reshape it and fine-tune it. Um, and I was working a lot with Laura O'Neill, who's one of the mm-hmm. founders. We we were just going back and forth. We did a lot of... Um, we, we had a couple meetings. We did some Skype chats, which are great, right? Because you can video conference each other and be sitting in your own, um, in your own house if you're uh, pressed for time. And it... First of all, um, just going back for a second, I've been obsessed with their ice cream since the first day that they went out in their truck. It just so happened, and this is like weird fate taking place, it just so happened that their very first day before they launched really formally, they were out in Battery Park City, and I had been there checking out some weird new building fair. They they, They built this new building, and I saw this cute little yellow truck and I walked up to it and they had um, a bunch of ice creams in this beautiful vintage botanical illustrations and I got ginger ice cream because I'd never had it before and I thought it was such a brilliant flavor and I love ginger and that was the first time I had their ice cream and so I've always loved their ice cream far above everything else because it wasn't very sweet um, and I don't like overly sweet things and I love the fact that they used ingredients that you find in your pantry so when I heard that they wanted to speak to me about writing a book, I almost fell out of my chair. I was so excited because I was like, this is the ice cream. This is the only ice cream I really eat. This yeah. is the ice cream I really love. So for me, it's such an honor to work with them. Um, and they have a really great story to tell because they they really stuck to their guns in that they were not they were not putting you know, gums and stabilizers in their ice cream. They were not putting milk powder in their ice cream. They were going to use, you know, the best ingredients that they could source you know the pistachios that they source come from sicily and they're hand harvested every two years and um and i loved the fact that they were 
so dedicated and passionate and and they were very young when they were starting that business i mean they're still very young but that kind of commitment and that passion i i it's it's a beautiful story i think that's going to be a very easy story to tell well i mean even with you having loved their ice cream before this this moment happened how important is it to be invested in a project you have to you have to like not only what you're doing but what you're doing it for right well i've been very lucky i have i've worked um thus far with supremely nice people um and you know every once in a while you read an article about a horror story someone had working on a book with someone or um working on a project and i really i I don't knock on wood um i don't have that yet because i i've been just so blessed with working with really lovely people and the way that the way that I see it is everybody has everybody's approach and everybody's viewpoint and everybody's way of doing things is interesting and it's again it's yet another way for me to learn a different take on things so I find it to be um always always very exciting i I don't know i maybe because I'm still wide-eyed and bushy-tailed about it no, you know you i just have haven't been i haven't that. been jaded about that but i find all the projects that i'm working with to be fascinating i'm you know i'm working on a book with mark murphy now um who's a judge on chopped and who's a bunch of restaurants in in new york and he's just got so many great ideas and he's got so much energy and his story is absolutely amazing he grew up in europe and you know he watched his grandparents in france cook and um his whole the way that his world was shaped was very different he moved around so much too that he really when he cooks he brings all these different ingredients and elements and techniques um in in with his own with 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 dishes that he makes so i know you're saying you're taking on someone's else's voice when you write these books but i want to hear yours so i know (laughs) i from your instagram feed from uh, other social media uh, mostly of cats yeah well we'll talk about cats at the end um like the kitchen sink, there are often these amassed dishes, and I want to know what's been going on in your kitchen, lady. Um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur coming yeah. up. You must have your spin on dishes. I, I, I was trying to make brisket last night, overnight brisket, and our carbon monoxide detector mm, went off lovely. at 1 o'clock in the morning, so I have a half-cooked brisket in my fridge. Um, there was a lot Miqui. of... Yes. <laughs> there was a lot of... Um, uh, refrigerator Tetris at 1 o'clock in the morning, which I'm not very good at <laughs> when I'm in deep sleep or just been woken out of deep sleep and so um rosh hashanah prep um and uh testing recipes for mark murphy's book so there's a lot of that um, yeah so that's what's been going on in the kitchen i think i took a picture of um i was making uh, a dessert I, I i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about individual dishes for the book um but it was, it was a dessert and it involved five bowls and i thought oh good god <laughs> and so i took a i took a look at my sink with five bowls and all of them messy, and I thought that's that's a that's a story yeah. or, or a mini. It's a vignette. It's a little story. It's a picture. What are those little dolls that fit inside the dolls? The Matreska dolls. Yeah, yeah. You just need Matreska. Yeah, uh, dishes. Bowls. I do. Yeah. Just bowl. Yeah, mm. and yeah, the the number of bowls I have in the kitchen yeah. is uh, mind boggling. So uh, yeah, so sometimes sometimes it's I, I'm really fascinated with um, not. Uh, perfectly styled things but i really like messes i like the way plates and tables look after people have finished tearing through their meat uh, or food or vegetable and you have these sort of very barbaric looking you know top-down shots or 
you know, what a kitchen looks like after you've tested eight recipes in one day. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not pretty. You you have to, like, take, you know, steel wool pretty much to get some of the grease off. Well, then, what are the recipes you cook for yourself? What are your comforts? Are they from your Russian heritage? Are they from, you know, your newfound global cuisine? Some, um, some yes, some no. Um, I... Uh, Mm, what do I cook as a comfort food? Well, for me, nothing beats a big pot of mashed potatoes. Oh, I thought you were going to say nothing beets. I'm done with borscht. I'm done with all that. Oh, no, never. <laughs> never. I will never be done with beets or borscht or uh, herring or any of those things. Um, so, yes, those are comfort foods in some ways. But I used to um, – I had a, a roommate when I first moved to New York who was South Indian, and one of her big comfort meals was basmati rice with yogurt and lime pickle. And so I will make that for myself if I'm just feeling really crappy about the world and I just want some comfort and I, that's, you know, or I make a big bowl of mashed potatoes or a big pot of mashed potatoes and I proceed to eat the whole pot. Um, but Nora Ephron wrote so eloquently about uh, mashed potatoes in her book Heartbreak, um, Heartburn that when I read it, I thought, wow, there's somebody else out there who had the same worldview of mashed potatoes. That I, I mean, she really thought it would like it could take care of a bad day, and that's how I feel about them. Um, Actually, but, I want to get your mashed potato recipe then, being um, that there are 50 ways to hard-boil an egg. What is your way to mashed potatoes? Um, I don't really have a way per se. Um, I Everything needs to be warm when you combine it. So, uh, you know, butter has to be melted and warm. Milk has to be melted and warm. I do like to add some cream to it. Um, when my husband wants to eat some mashed potatoes, I don't put cream in it because it will kill him. Um, he is sensitive to that. Uh, but I basically try to whip it really quickly. Um, and for some reason, I always wind up doing it by hand just because time is of the essence. But you don't want to stir it too much because then it gets too gluey. And instead of like airy and light and wonderful, it becomes heavy and what, the opposite of what you want in mashed potatoes. Um, Aside from the fact that you just put like your entire day's worth of calories yeah, yeah. <laughs> in it, but but we're we're talking about comfort, yeah, right? You can't put you can't put a caloric value yeah, on comfort. <laughs> so, um, Joe, can we make sure we pull quote that that you can't put the caloric <laughs> value on comfort? No, it's, it's, it's priceless and yeah. precious. Um, so yeah, so I I don't think there's like a method, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll throw in some caramelized onions if I have some lying in the fridge, and sometimes I have some roasted garlic, and that goes in. It really. Sometimes I used, I went through a phase where I made a lot of wasabi mashed potatoes because I couldn't get enough of wasabi. They were green, green mashed potatoes. So there was a lot of that. But I don't know if there's a method. Just good starchy potato. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing, um, like no red bliss potatoes. Those wouldn't be good. So now I want to talk about cat food really quickly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird diversion, but <laughs> you and I both uh, are... are have cats obsessed with our cats a little too much so we both have hashtags for our cats yep um and they are from what it seems hearty eaters yeah well our cat isn't that big of an eater that's the weird i think he's just we joke um my husband and i joke that he is built like a linebacker and there was ever a cat nfl draft He'd totally be in the first pick. Um, yeah. And so I think your cat, because you told oh, me Oh, well, his, if you need O-line, yeah, he'll protect <laughs> your blind side. He'd be great. I think we should start putting together a team. But um, no, he doesn't eat that much, but he somehow became very spoiled with whenever I'm cooking like chicken or fish or meat, he always gets a little nibble because he like he loves that stuff. And 
So, yeah, so we've created a monster. To be a cat in your house. <laughs> mm. And water from a human glass held oh, yeah. for him. He won't drink it. If you put it on the floor, you have to hold it for him. <laughs> They're so specific. <laughs> well, back to not cats. Yes. <laughs> back to not my cats. Um, congratulations. I mean, th- this, this has been... You know, an amazing adventure for you, and this is just the beginning. This is just it's the been precipice, amazing. You know, I feel very fortunate. I feel very lucky. I'm very grateful for everybody who's ever given me an opportunity or a chance. And just watch know. out when you go to you know the, the green market. And now you have people approach you. Okay. You have to don that same <laughs> you know attitude mentorship to them. I I. I mean, the few people that have approached me for advice, I always go. I, I don't know if I have any advice to give, but I mean, I try to be as helpful as, as, as an informative um, and honest because it's it's not an easy life I mean I have a I work a PR job about 35 hours a week which is almost like a full-time job and I'm working on three cookbooks right now so it's not easy um, but it is if you love it it's totally worth it well you can forward all those inquiries on to heritageradionetwork.org because Absolutely. now we have 40 minutes of advice for people straight <laughs> from the source Olga Masov Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. if you've me. never gone to sassyradish.com, make it part of your everyday life. Thank you. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Looking forward to having you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.